The following message is from Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found at emmanuelcommunity.org. Well, we're continuing on in the Sermon on the Mount series. Uh, some of you said still, <laughs> and it's the we're we're getting there. We're getting near the finish line. I, I would say, you know, as Adelaide did make mention of that last week was our annual meeting where we said a lot of important things. So if you were not there at that meeting, would really encourage you to uh, watch the uh, YouTube recording because that captured the significant bulk of the things that were announced there, as well as to really listen to that message because yes, it's a, it was a sermon, but it was a sermon that was also trying to really lay out a challenge for the entire year of what it means for us to see 2022 as a really important rebuilding year where we try to strengthen the bonds of our community that have been so strained during this uh, pandemic. And so uh, please listen to that message if you haven't heard that already. Join me in a word of prayer though, and we will look at our uh, text for this morning. Father, we do ask that work to be done here in the midst of our fellowship, our community, that you would knit our hearts together through the working of your Holy Spirit, that we would uh, declare that our oneness in Christ, this identity as your children that transcends all of the other aspects of who we are. And even now as we sit together as one family, uh, under the teaching of your word, we pray for hearts of humility, uh, a posture of learning, that we might better know your heart for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the passage for this morning is it's great because it's a single verse. And so we're just going to look at one verse today. Matthew chapter 7, verse 6. And it reads like this. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Now, just before the service, we met for the Understanding the Bible seminar. And with that group, I was basically teaching how we understand difficult passages in Scripture because the Bible is filled with a lot of them, things that kind of make you scratch your head and are very confusing to understand. And I would actually argue that Matthew 7, 6 sort of fits into that category of difficult passages that we don't really know what to make sense of. Um, and I think it's difficult for a number of reasons. One is it doesn't seem to fit in with the teaching that surrounds it. So when you read what just happened before, what Jesus taught right before this, and then what he teaches right after it, um, it just feels like Matthew 7, 6 was almost like inserted there in a very awkward way. It also is difficult because it just sounds really harsh, really condemning, um, calling people dogs and pigs. The last reason why I would argue that it's confusing and difficult is because it's just hard to understand. What exactly we're commanded to do when Jesus says not to throw what is sacred to dogs or to throw our pearls at pigs? What is Jesus really getting at here in this verse? Well, throughout the history of the church, uh, people have struggled with this verse. Uh, if you really look at some of the early church fathers, 
One of the ways that they understood this was that as Christians, we need to make sure that people who are not saved and who are not baptized don't take communion. And so it's this whole idea of fencing the table and making sure only believers take communion. Well, that view of this verse has largely been abandoned in our time. I think the more traditional, classic understanding of this passage is that the pearls, the sacred pearls, symbolize the preaching of the gospel, the gospel message. And therefore, then, the dogs and the pigs represent people who are totally resistant to the gospel message, who are even, in fact, hostile to it, so that when you share the good news of the gospel, they attack you. They not only reject that message, but they may even attack you for sharing it. And so, uh, according to this traditional view, Jesus is basically warning you not to bother with people like that. Because trying to reach them is like throwing precious things to wild animals. And so... uh, All it's going to lead to is chaos and destruction and jeopardizing your own safety. Uh, I'll be honest with you. I struggle with that interpretation. And I struggle with it primarily because um, I don't believe the Sermon in the Mount is just a string of Jesus' teachings randomly organized together as little independent sayings. But I think that the sermon has a certain uh, unity to it and that it is like a real sermon in which it moves from one teaching to the next and all of it is basically tied together. And I also struggle with this classical interpretation of this verse because if I really think about it, I'm not really sure Jesus abided by his own wisdom there. Because you could argue that Jesus proclaimed the gospel indiscriminately. He taught everyone about the kingdom of God and taught it freely and taught it to all groups, Gentiles and Jews and the poor and the sinners and the immoral as well as the religious leaders. And so if you think about any one group that would probably apply this to the most, it probably was the religious leaders who were like these dogs and pigs, who actually always were attacking Jesus and often were setting traps for him so that they were never sincere in their desire to learn about the kingdom. They were constantly trying to figure out how to entrap him and attack him. And so if Jesus followed his own teaching, he should have avoided these religious leaders. But he engaged with them all the time. In fact, you could even argue that precisely because Jesus did that, it's what got him killed when he finally went to Jerusalem and they crucified him because of that message that he bore. Now, I will say this. I will acknowledge that this is a difficult verse to understand, and I will even acknowledge that the traditional view of understanding this verse may be correct. It may be the correct interpretation. But I I also want to say that I think there is another way to understand this teaching that, to me anyway, makes a lot more sense Uh, because it fits with what Jesus taught right before this and then it also connects with what he teaches right after this verse. Let me unpack that for you right now. 
Right before Jesus talks about throwing pearls to pigs, he has just taught about not judging other people. And he points out that the sins of others are always so much more obvious than our own sins. And so as a result, we're always such busybodies trying to pluck that speck out of somebody else's eye, always pointing out where they've fallen short while being totally blind to our own failures and shortcomings. In essence, the big log that is sticking out, out of our own eye. And so he commands his disciples, do not judge other people because God alone is their judge. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 2 says, all a person's ways seem pure to them, but motives are weighed by the Lord. What this proverb is saying is that in our own minds, all of us think we're righteous. All of us think that we're driven by good motives. And we all think that we're coming from a pure heart. But the Bible says not so fast. There are so many hidden layers to the deceptiveness of the human heart. That there are so many times when we may be fooling ourselves. I, I think what scripture is affirming in so many different ways is that we are all so limited in our perspective. We think we see from a God perspective and can test the heart of a person and know what their motives are and why they're doing what they're doing. And what the Bible says is not so fast. You have to be very cautious about thinking that you really know a person and what's motivating them or even what's in your own heart and what's motivating you. At the same time, though, there are times when we must make judgment on matters, like exposing false teaching. And I do believe here in verse 6, Jesus is calling us to practice discernment. But I believe that the focus of the discernment is not on the worthiness of a person to hear the gospel message. I don't think that's what this verse is talking about. Is, is that person worthy to hear this good news? of the gospel. Instead, I think the discernment that Jesus is calling us to is the receptivity of the person we're trying to help with the truth that we're proclaiming to them. Is there an open door in this person's heart to receive what I'm trying to give them? Dallas Willard in The Divine Conspiracy writes, the problem with pearls for pigs is not that the pigs are not worthy. It is not worthiness that is in question here at all, but helpfulness. Pigs cannot digest pearls, cannot nourish themselves upon them. You see, from this perspective, the blame isn't so much on the pigs or the dogs. After all, they're just acting in their nature, like pigs and dogs would do if you threw pearls at them. But on the foolishness for giving them what they cannot understand or appreciate. In other words, why in the world would you give a pig a pearl? Whose fault is that? Listen, the value of the truths that we are offering is not in question. After all, Jesus describes them as sacred pearls. These are precious things in God's eyes. These are valuable. 
I don't even think Jesus is necessarily questioning the sincerity of our hearts when we try to help someone in this way. We may very well have the best intentions in our heart when we're trying to help someone see the truth. But even these precious truths can cause more harm than good when we aren't wise about how and when we are trying to push them on others. I think the logic in our minds is like this. If there is validity in what I'm trying to tell you, then that is all the justification that I need to push that truth on you. The truth is the justification. If I stand on the side of truth, then it's my right to proclaim that to you. But I think Jesus may be telling us that there is more to consider when it comes to trying to help or influence someone in the right direction. Again, Willard writes, and what a picture this is of our efforts to correct and control others by pouring our good things, often truly precious things, upon them, things that they nevertheless simply cannot ingest and use to nourish themselves. Often, we do not even listen to them. We, quote, know without listening. Our good intentions make little difference. The needy person will finally become angry and attack us. The point is not the waste of the pearl, but that the person gives the pearl, giving the pearl is not helped. How often this happens between child and parent. Frankly, our pearls often are offered with a certain superiority of bearing that keeps us from paying attention to those we are trying to help. We have solutions. That should be enough, shouldn't it? And very quickly, some contempt, impatience, anger, and even condemnation slips into our offer. And the very goodness of our pearl may make us think that we couldn't possibly have the wrong attitude toward the intended recipient. Would we be offering them such pearls if our heart were not right? Unfortunately, we just might. I think it's really interesting that Willard highlights the parent-child relationship because I think this is where this dynamic plays out more commonly than in any other relationship. If you look at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, it says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. A similar parallel command is found in Colossians chapter 3, verse 21. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. You know that specific word Paul uses in that Ephesians passage, exasperate. It's actually used around 60 times in the Greek Old Testament, what's known as the Septuagint. And in almost every single one of those instances that that word is used, it's used to describe how God feels about the sins of Israel. It's the wrath or the anger that is generated in the heart of God when Israel sins. And so the question is, why did Paul choose that specific word? Well, I think Paul might have chosen that word because there is a sense in which Paul is validating the anger of the child, saying that there is something stirred up in the heart of that child against the way that the parent is treating them. And if you put that in its cultural context, what we know is that in those days, in ancient Rome, 
In both Roman and Jewish culture, interestingly, the parents had absolute authority over their children. Okay, it's kind of scary, but a parent could really, you could even say, put their kids to death if they wanted to. Um, in other words, parents weren't obligated to take into account the needs and the sensitivities of their children because they had total control over their kids' lives. And because of the lopsided nature of that relationship, there was a very real risk of parents abusing that authority on their children and totally disregarding their desires, their wishes, their will, and saying, I'm the parent, you do as I say, end of story, period. And so rather than responding positively to that correction, the child lashes out in anger at the parent at how they're being treated. And I think that might be a similar dynamic to what Jesus might be describing here in Matthew 7, verse 6, of throwing pearls to pigs and being attacked for it. Maybe I could sum it up like this. We may have truth on our side and even the sincerest of motives, but still bring harm to the people we're trying to help if they are not ready to receive it. There is another added layer of wisdom that Jesus is inviting to us to when we're trying to help someone. I want us to wrestle with that a little bit because I bet you there are people in your life over whom you have a certain degree of influence or authority. And maybe everything in you is desiring to try to help them, to be a better person, to embrace gospel truths. But maybe the way that you're going about it is in a way that isn't really helpful right now. And maybe you're trying to push something on them that they're not really ready to receive. And the more you push, the worse it's getting. I don't think that it's an accident that the very next passage Jesus goes into is a passage about prayer. Look at what it says in verse 7 to 8 of Matthew 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be open. In other words, right after warning us about pushing our agenda on others, Jesus invites us to ask for the things that we need in prayer. In prayer. What I'm saying is that sometimes when the door to someone's heart is not open, the truth is, we try to beat down that door, don't we? But not every door can be opened by our persistence or even our sheer determination. Rather than pushing our convictions on others when they are not ready to receive it, we need to pray that God will change their hearts in his timing. There's a sense of surrender and patience that's required for this. I can't force my way in into that person's heart. No matter how valid these truths are, 
that I'm trying to impress on them. Sometimes the only recourse we have is prayer. Give it to God in prayer. Jesus, I think, modeled this heart of patiently waiting for God to act in prayer with his own disciples. Look at what it says in Luke chapter 22, verse 31 to 32. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. I've shared on this verse before and have pointed out that there's something both very comforting and very disturbing about these words of Jesus. It's comforting because Jesus is essentially telling Peter, Simon Peter, I've got your back. I'm going to be there with you. I'm going to help you through this. But it's a little disturbing because for Jesus to say, I'll be praying for you, let's be honest here. That sounds a little weak, doesn't it? Because that's the kind of stuff we would say to one another. But Jesus is God. Listen, if Jesus knows that Satan is requesting to harm his disciples, particularly Peter, this is nothing minor. He's saying, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, put you through hell. Then why doesn't Jesus just respond by saying, and you know what, I'm going to prevent the whole thing from happening. Why is it that Jesus only offers his prayers to Simon? Why doesn't, in other words, Jesus say something like, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. And as the Lord of the universe, I am going to squash him like a bug. <laughs> Isn't that what Jesus ought to say? But I want to say this. What Jesus is telling his disciples about his commitment to pray for them is such an important lesson for us about how God works to change us in our lives. Let me ask you this. Have you ever prayed a desperate prayer that God would change somebody in your life that you care desperately about? And then can I ask you this? What exactly is your expectation of how God is going to answer that prayer? Is your hope that God is going to hear your prayer and then with a wave of his hand instantaneously and magically change that person so that they have a completely different personality overnight. There may be a handful of testimonies out there of people experiencing that kind of dramatic life transformation. I don't discount that. But I would also argue that's not the normal way that God answers that prayer. Of course, God could do that, but I would argue that's not his normal way of answering that prayer. Why? Because I believe he does not treat us like robots that simply need to be reprogrammed. There is something very vital about the fact that he made us beings with free will that is really important to the process.
I mean, you know, if you're a husband, do you ever say, oh, oh no. Why, why do I suddenly uh, have this urge to clean the bathroom uh, on my day off and go on long romantic walks with my wife? Oh, shoot. I think she's praying for me again. <laughs> I know many of you wives wish that's the way it worked. I would argue this isn't how God typically brings change in our hearts. What Jesus understood is that there is a process that is so vital to our spiritual growth as his disciples. And that journey of transformation cannot be rushed or shortcutted just by God doing miracles left and right, bailing us out of trouble. Instead, what I would argue is that God allows us to go through different experiences, even trials, using his power to strengthen us so that we will willingly participate as partners in that transforming work to make us into the kind of people that he longs us to be. It's not always about the miracle, but the journey. And here's the truth, is in our impatience and frustration, we often try to fix people, don't we, with brute force. And in doing so, we often cause more damage than good. And so we plead with them, we bargain with them, we debate with them, we manipulate them, we shame them, we threaten them. We, we do everything we can thinking that that's what's going to finally move the ball here and change them. And the truth is, more often than not, that blows up in our face. And they end up attacking us for it. Here's what I see in the example of Jesus. Even though Jesus is so much more powerful than we are, there is this patience and surrender that he enters into when he says to Peter, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But the way that I am going to respond to that is I am going to be praying for you. That when you go through that trial, your faith will survive it. So that when you come out on the other side, stronger, strengthen your brothers with that same faith. God doesn't treat us like we often treat others. He often redirects us through gentle nudges. It may be opening our eyes to see something about ourselves that we've always been blind to. It may be giving us a whole new perspective that changes our anger and bitterness into gratitude and hope. It may be placing us into difficult situations that force us to depend on God rather than ourselves. Let's be honest here. When we are so desperate for somebody to change, God's patient and gentle methods can feel so frustratingly slow and weak to us, can't they? We just want the quick fix. We want God to break down that door and just fix that person overnight. But that is not how God treats us. God's path 
of spiritual growth that he has ordained for us often involves a very long, drawn-out process that is not easy for us to observe when we're seeing that in somebody we care about. I'm sorry for overwhelming you with Willard today, but there's one more Willard quote here. I think there is perhaps no other scene in all Scripture that so forcefully illustrates the community of prayerful love as this response to Peter. How earnestly Jesus longed for Peter to come out right in his time of testing. But he left him free to succeed or fail before God and man. And as it turned out before all of subsequent human history, he used no condemnation, no shame, no, quote, pearls of wisdom on him. And he didn't use supernatural power to rewire his soul or his brain. It was just this, quote, I have requested concerning you that your faith might not die. It is Jesus' beautiful pattern for us to practice in our relationships to those close to us. I pray to God that you would see the wisdom in what Jesus is offering to us as a model of how God brings about change in the heart of a person. Because this is how he treats us, isn't it? When it comes to us, we beg God's patience and forgiveness. But how impatient we are toward the shortcomings and failures of others. Let me just end with this. And many of you know I have an older brother named Dave. He's actually a pastor in the local Chicago area out there, uh, Harvest Community Church, our sister church in the Thrive Network. He is older than me, although everyone always thinks I'm older because he's such a fun-loving, happy guy without a single gray hair. My hair is almost completely gray, and I'm always the brooding, serious one. Um, but here's the thing, and I've, I've actually shared elements of this, although I'm going to flesh it out with some angles that I've not really talked about very much. But we're only 15 months apart, and growing up, it was kind of weird, but I was always physically stronger than him. And uh, maybe because we just grew up like that, so tight as brothers, I was very blind to some of the actually very um, poor ways that I treated my brother. I, I think, if I'm really honest, there was a dark side in me that wanted to exert dominance over him all the time. It sounds horrible, but what I used to do sometimes is that when we're just at home, I would literally just bear hug him and then not let him go. And he would at first take it jokingly like we're wrestling, and then eventually he goes, now let me go, let me go, and I wouldn't let him go. And I would do it when I really thought about it, just to humiliate him. And sometimes he would freak out and he would swing, and, and still I would hold on to him <laughs> just to say, you know, break free if you can. I mean, it was this kind of psychological games I used to play with him. And that probably showed itself most strongly on the tennis court. Because again, although I was younger, uh, I could always beat him in tennis. And whenever we would play outside at our local tennis courts, I would trash talk him all the time, and humiliate him. Uh, you could look at it from one perspective, ah, this is just boys being boys. But if I'm really honest, there was a dark side to that. I wanted to rub it in his face and let him know that he's never going to be able to beat me. And here's the thing that I never really shared this part of it was, 
there were friends of ours that saw this behavior of mine. And they actually tried to call me out on it and said, what's wrong with you, man? Like, your brother's such a nice guy. And why do you do this to him? Why do you have to humiliate him even in front of us like this? And I remember at that time being very upset and getting very angry and saying, you don't know my relationship with my brother, you know? Because my brother, the truth is, never complained about it. He's such a nice guy. He always took it so lighthearted, like, ah, you know, and they just went on with it. And then I realized that there was actually a season when my parents tried to call me out on it. And they would pull me aside and say, you know, Steve, uh, we did, although we're a Korean family, we didn't want to raise you with that sense that the firstborn son has all the privilege and that you're nothing. We actually wanted to raise you more in an American culture where you guys feel more like friends. So we never did that to you guys. But they said, but sometimes when we see the way you treat your brother, it's not right. It's not right. And he will never say anything to you, but this isn't how you should treat him. Same thing. Totally rejected it. Totally said, you don't know Dave and I. And it was interesting because it wasn't until I finally got to college and another guy witnessed my relationship with my brother. And he called me out on it and said, man, when I see how you treat your brother, it's horrible. You have so much pride. I don't know why in that moment, but it hit me like a ton of bricks. And for some reason in that moment, my heart was open to hear that rebuke. And it was like he was putting a mirror in front of my face. When I finally saw how I treated my brother, I was almost undone. I, I actually began to weep openly. And it was as if like the tape recording of my life was just playing back and I saw all these things I had done to him. And not once did he ever get mad at me. But the weight of that guilt and that shame was so great. And I remember uh, getting back to campus because this was during the summer. And I just had a meeting with him. And I said, Dave, you, I know you will never ask for this. But you need to hear this from my lips. How sorry I am for the way that I've treated you. And he was like, huh? <laughs> like that, like, he's like, he was like, I don't know what you're talking about. That's how kind-hearted he is. That's how nice he is. He didn't go, yeah, man. <laughs> you know, like... He was like, oh, okay. You know, it was like that. But I said, I know. I know you don't think I've wronged you, but I have wronged you. I have wronged you in some really bad ways. It's interesting how a heart of a person opens in its own timing, isn't it? That same message just bounced off of me when those other messengers tried to communicate it to me. But somehow in that right window of time, God opened a window into my heart and let me really receive that word. This is the patient love of God that waits on us and nudges us and calls us into his righteousness. Let's pray. Mm -hmm.